Man, I'm glad that we have an opportunity today to close out our study on Christian ethics. And uh, we're going to do that. We're going to cover more ground than we normally do. And so we're going to be in chapter 7, verses 25 through 40 this morning. Now, before we get into this, and we've been in, in this study of Christian ethics uh, since we opened up chapter 5, so we've been in it for a couple of months now. So I just want to make sure that we all understand something so that when we approach the study and the topic of, of ethics, we don't end up as kind of list keepers, as rule keepers, and, and really move away from, I think, the direction of the text and, and what he's been communicating to us and really just kind of how Christianity works in general. It's easy to keep lists. It, it's easy for somebody to give you and say, hey, look, I'm so glad you're a Christian. You come to know Jesus. Uh, you confess him as Savior and Lord. Here's a list of things that you need to do. And as long as you do this, your relationship with him will remain intact and everything's going to be okay. And, and we really just don't have to have this conversation again. And, and that would be, in some sense, easier. But it's also, it, it pushes back against us having any dependency upon the Holy Spirit, and really any necessity of relationship with God mediated through the person of Jesus Christ and his shed blood. But invariably, anytime we look at a subject like ethics and we step in and say, look, your life needs to look like this, it doesn't need to look like this over here, we begin to kind of check off and, and we create this rubric whereby we want to live our life and we want these things to be true of us and we want to make sure these things over here are, are not true of us. And this is the tendency that we find ourselves engaging in, and, and then our lives begin to be nothing more than rule followers. But that is so uh, enfeebled, it's so anemic, it's so, uh, such a weak version and disingenuous version of what Christianity actually is. You see, Christianity calls us into this radical love relationship with Jesus, whereby I submit myself each and every day to him, and, and my life is lived as a reflection of the testimony of love that he has extended to me. And so how do I find myself in the midst of these things, keeping these rules and these uh, constraints upon my life? It's not by waking up and saying, okay, well, don't do this today. Okay, we'll do this today. It's waking up each day saying, what does it look like for me to be more passionately in love with Jesus, giving ever-increasing measure of my life over to him. And then in the midst of doing this, in the midst of living this wonderfully vibrant, beautiful love relationship with Jesus, people see me and they say, why is your life distinctly different than mine own? Why is your life distinctly different than the culture around you? And my only response I can give is because I so desperately love Jesus and need him each and every moment to sustain my life, that my life is in his hands, that everything about me is submitted to him. This is why my life is distinctly different. Do you see how much more full-bore, how more beautiful a response that is to, look, I can, I can give you my list of 15 things, and you too can have a beautiful, well-marked, and well-kept life. So as we step into this final section in verses 25 through 40, Paul's not seeking to tell them this is what it looks like to be engaged to somebody, and if it goes the wrong direction, this is what you do. He's seeking to, to paint this picture of what it looks like to be invested in a love relationship with Jesus and how that plays out within the particulars of the predicament in which they find themselves. Recognize that all of these things from chapter 7 all the way through it are responses to the questions they've asked him. 
He began the chapter and he says, now concerning the matters about which you wrote. And then he began to go through and answer the questions they had. He's addressing the issues that they were dealing with. And so we'll find uh, no small number of ways that we can apply this personally to ourselves. And the temptation, I think, is to find ways that we can apply this to the people near us. Resist that. They don't want your input. They want to see you submitting to Jesus. Amen? Amen. Uh, The person in the back, thank you. And so he opens up and he says, Now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. Now this is very similar to what Paul said back in verse 12 when he said, I, not the Lord. In essence, he's not going along and pushing the pause button on the inspiration, but he's saying, look, I've got no clear teaching from Jesus on what I'm getting ready to talk to you about. And one of the reasons Paul has no clear teaching on the subject of, of what it is for a Christian to be betrothed from Jesus is that there were no Christians until Jesus died and was resurrected, right? And so Jesus didn't go around saying, hey, for all those engaged Christians, because it would have made no sense to them. It would have made no sense to them. It wasn't what he was engaging on. It wasn't what he was talking about. And so Paul gives us a clear understanding that he has no no foundational teaching that Jesus said, look, if you're engaged, this is what your life looks like. But he does have a walk with Jesus. He is in submission to Jesus. He has the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of him. And so he's able to give this response to those there in Corinth. And so look at what he says, verse 26. He says, I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Now, this is a statement in which uh, he's going to spend the lion's share of his time unpacking. And so what is this present distress? And so people have, have pontificated and largely spoken from, uh, from historical studies and said, well, there was a famine going on. And that's, that's the present distress. Oh, it was persecution. That's the distress. Oh, it was a, kind of the coming destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. And, and that was distress. Well, we don't know those things. What we do know is that there is some acute situation. There's something significant transpiring there that led him to give this blanket statement. Everybody just needs to relax. So you have all these people that are saying, well, what if I move? And what if I get married? And what if I do this? And what if I change this relationship status? And Paul just says, just, just, just calm down. That's actually a great counseling step. And somebody comes into your office, just say, just calm down. Notice you're speaking to yourself in that moment because you're so overwhelmed with their problems. It's actually not very effective for the other person. But, but he, he says, he says, I thank you for the present distress. So all the stuff that's going on here, we need to recognize what our priorities need to be. And, and the Christian's priorities flow from our dependence upon Jesus. Our, our, our priorities, the pecking order of what we do and what we give time to and what we give attention to and what we spend our money on flows from our dependence upon Jesus. And so you would say that if you are not immediately connected and intimately connected to Jesus, your priorities are going to be all out of whack. You're going to be going from a kind of impending situation to doom and despair and to to, to whatever seems to be the most urgent for you in your life. And so it's either a relationship or or it's a job situation or it's somebody else and, and their issues brought to bear in your life. But what we recognize is the greater our dependence upon Jesus is, the more we're able to remain slow and steady in the midst of even these present distresses. And so Paul moves to address the issue of engagement. Now, the ESV 
has a, an interpretive decision they've made, and, and I just want to kind of talk about that for a second so that you can understand why I think he's talking about engagement and why he's not talking in verses 27 and 28 about divorce, okay? One of the reasons I don't think he's talking about divorce is because back in verse 10 of chapter 7, he said, the Lord, not I, right? And he began to then talk about divorce. And so we have a clear teaching from Jesus in three of the gospels on the subject of divorce. So it wouldn't make any sense for Paul to come into this and say, look, look, I've got no command from the Lord. In essence, he would have to have forgotten what he's written just a few verses earlier, okay? So that's reason one that I think that he's not talking about divorce here. But the ESV renders and says, are you bound to a wife? And so they take the Greek word, uh, gunaikai, woman, and they render it as wife. Now, you could just as easily translate this. In fact, the NIV does, which I generally refer to as the nearly inspired version. But it, it translates it as woman. And so it says within the NIV, are you pledged to a woman? So within their culture, within their day, if you were going to be engaged, if you were going to be betrothed to a woman, it was a lengthy process, and it was a process that you didn't enter into lightly, nor one which you made an exit hastily. And so from this, he's talking about, look, if you happen to find yourself in the midst of a betrothal arrangement, and you're a man or you're a woman, Jesus gives us no clear teaching on this, but under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, I think this, this is how God would have us to operate. So he asks, are you betrothed? Have you made a commitment to a woman? Have you made a commitment to be married to a man? And, and playing out what he talks about with remain as you are, he says, do not seek to be free. Recognize that, that chapter 7 and kind of moving for this and chapter 5 and chapter 6 a lot of these things aren't dealing with necessarily sin issues in them. They're terrible and awful people, and Paul is just blasting them and saying, cut this mess out, stop being idiots, stop being morons. Within chapter 7, the issues they're largely dealing with, they were tailoring their lives to, for spiritual enhancement. They wanted to be closer to God, so they're engaging in doing things externally to help them be closer to God. And so in this, he's saying, look, you don't need to affect any change externally amongst these relationships to get you closer to God, to make you more spiritual, to make God more pleasantly inclined towards you, to make him happier with you. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you, are you free from a wife? Are you just kind of living life as a single person? He says, it doesn't greatly enhance your spirituality to be married. Don't seek a wife. So then he's going to give some instructions. And he's going to say, but if you do marry in essence, if your betrothal goes through and you get married, you have not sinned. Because there were those in their community who would say, look, it's okay. It's one thing to be betrothed. It's one thing to be engaged. But if you give yourself to another, if you form this one flesh union, if you submit to marriage, oh, God's going to be so unhappy with you, and you'll never be close to him again. So Paul has to let them know. He says, if you do this, you've not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she's not sinned. But look what he says. Yet, yet, those who marry will have worldly troubles. Don't say amen. Those who marry will have worldly troubles. And, and notice his pastoral heart here. This is so different than, than what we 
recognize and see in so many of our, our relationships today where we see a single person and we say, you need to find a, a man or, or you need to find a woman who can make you happy and, and you can serve the Lord with them. And it's so much more of a, a beautiful union. And, and finally, there's this fullness of life that results there. You recognize the whole time what we're telling single people is, is you're, you don't have full personhood. You don't have full value. You don't have full ability to relate to God. And, and, and you could have full ability to relate to God if and only if you were married. So let me help fix the mess of the life that you've made. Let me help fix this. Let me set you up with somebody. Sure, they may be into a little bit of mess, but everybody's got issues. They've got the majority of their teeth left. It's okay. It's not such a big deal. So you're kind of a fixer-upper, right? And so we go into this idea that, that somehow there's something wrong in them. But look what Paul says. He says, those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would rather spare you from that. He's leaning in and he's telling us, in some sense, it is superior to be single. It's superior to be single. Single and not ready to mingle. Single and ready to serve the Lord and to do so passionately. We have these worldly troubles. And Paul's going to go on. He's going to begin to expound upon that. Look at verse 29. He says, this is what I mean. In essence, this is what I'm talking about when I say worldly troubles. The appointed time has grown very short. And so he says, look, we have this, 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 this position in time whereby Jesus was resurrected, whereby he departed and he received the Holy Spirit. And he thinks about that as one unit of time. And then the second unit of time is his return again. And he says, look, this is what's happened. These two things are getting closer and closer together. Time is being compressed. Time is being brought into one. And on the basis of this, you need to get busy serving Jesus. On the, business, on, on, on the, on the reality of this, you need to live your life and leverage everything you have for the gospel of Jesus Christ, not the pursuits that you you said is important. And so we begin to set aside those things that we set as ultimate, that we set as highest value. And instead, we read the Bible, we're moved by the Holy Spirit, and we say, God, what do you set as ultimate for my life? And that's a scary thing to say. You see, because if we're in a, a, a dating relationship and perhaps we ask that question before God, God, what is ultimate for you in my life? You may say, you need to break this relationship off. You need to go uh, to university. And at the conclusion of that, you need to go to the nations and you need to never come back. And we said, well, God, what's your plan B? Because <laughs> he or she's pretty great and I could really see myself raising a gaggle of kids with them and I just think this would be wonderful. And I could raise up missionaries. So is this one of those generational blessings that you bless me and I bless them and then they go and but then they would take my grandkids. And so that somebody else, a neighbor perhaps, I could lead to the Lord and they would go. I don't care for my neighbor's kids. <laughs> oh man, I was just dating. This is exhausting. But it's terrifying. This idea that this appointed time growing short and our lives are lived in full submission to him. So everything we have is his. All of our relationships are his. We, our lives are, are supposed to be lived in submission to him, not in submission to our whims and our desires. And this is ruinous for a life lived to rise to the next level in my job. This is ruinous to a life where I want people to praise me. This is absolutely ruinous towards this overexalted sense of self that all of us would do much better to remain as we are and passionately pursue 
following Jesus. And so he gives us this list of five paradoxes of sorts. Look at the first thing he says. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none. Now let me just say a word. Some of you are living like you had no wife, thinking perhaps now you found an excuse for, for the, uh, the misery that you've made your wife or your husband's life. This isn't a freedom to, to poorly treat the person that you have become one flesh with. Now, and so I just want to defend that for a second. Paul writes in Ephesians 5, and he says that marriage is this wonderful, wonderful picture of the gospel. And, and we see in Genesis 2.24 that when you're married, it becomes a one flesh union. And so you're intimately tied to your spouse. There is no way to treat him or her poorly without also treating yourself poorly and being disingenuous, being false to the commitment you've made before God to that spouse. And so we recognize that marriage should be exalted, it should be lifted up. But Paul gives us this, this statement that really runs much closer to what Jesus said in Luke 14. Jesus in Luke 14 had tremendous crowds following him. He never had a problem keeping crowds. But one of the things we recognize about Jesus is that every time he builds up to a, a critical mass of people, in essence, like he could storm Jerusalem and they could take it. Every time he gets there, he sends them away with some incredibly difficult teaching because he recognizes they want to be entertained, but they're not ready to yet submit and follow. So he gives this teaching. Now his great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and he said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. If we look at all these relationships that we have and all the fondness we have towards them and, and just how intimately they are connected to us and Jesus' is, is, his command is, if I don't take priority, if I don't sit and rule and reign in your heart, you cannot be my disciple. And he wants us to get just how incredibly difficult that is and so he moves into this next verse. He says, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. He calls us to surrender and die. He calls us to surrender and die, and we act like coming to church on a Sunday morning qualifies. He calls us to surrender and die, so we write a check and we feel like that qualifies. He calls us to surrender and die. So we have some dream, some aspiration you are never going to attain to, right? None of us in here were going to play football in the NFL. And you say, look, I put that dream on hold for you, God. You can have it. And he just looks at it and says, are you ready to die for me? Can your love for me, when, when contrasted, when compared alongside the love of your spouse, would people say that you hate them because your love for me is so great? I tell you, I think about my own life, and I know I'm not there. John has this really damning statement in 1 John 4. He says, you say you love God, and you hate your brother. How can you profess to love God whom you've never seen and hate the brother whom you do see? Do you see the difficulty that we're called into? So we recognize that our love for God is, is failing and is weak. And in this recognition of this, we're called to a more magnificent view of his great love for us. 
some of us in this room, we have made our spouse our savior. Your spouse makes a really terrible savior. It's unfair to try and make them to be that. Your kids make a, a really terrible legacy of faith. It's really terrible to try and make them that. Have them follow you as you follow Jesus. This is the call of a believer in faith of Jesus Christ. Let them see what it looks like for mom and dad. Let your wife see what it looks like for her husband to willingly lay down his life, his hopes, his dreams, his aspirations, and die to follow Jesus. This is transformative. This is transformative. So he goes in and he gives us two sides of, 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 of this continuing paradox in verse 30. He says, those who mourn as if they weren't mourning. Those who rejoice as if they were not rejoicing. So we recognize all these things are fleeting. They are ephemeral. They are shadow and smoke. They are passing away. They're here, but for a moment, they are a vapor. So then he moves into the idea of, of, of commerce and he says, those who buy as though they had no goods. And so it gives us this idea that, that we have to buy things, right? We have to engage in commerce. We have to buy goods and services. It, it's very difficult for us now to be self-sustained, and that was never the argument that Paul was making. The argument he's making is be a, be a possessor of things. Don't be possessed by your things. This idea of kind of owning a vacation house or, or a deer lease and, and you're giving weekend after weekend to upkeep or you're working long hours to provide for these exorbitant trips, these, these insane trips that you want to take. And so we are slaves to merchandise. We're not using our, our goods, we're not using our talents to provide for our families, to provide in the charitable distribution of wealth to those around us. We're providing for, that. We're, we're engaged in allowing these things to have an increasing measure of our heart. And so we work at uh, an, an unmaintainable pace, an untenable pace. Be like a person who buys but has no goods. Look how he finishes. He says, those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. It's this, this terrible way that, that we're in this world. We are occupied in it, but the, the tendency is when we're engaged in it to let the 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 forests get closer and closer and closer to us and to the point we're no longer able to discern the trees from the forest. Because we begin to set our hopes and affections that this world is ultimate. And so we begin to form and fashion to make this world the best possible place we can be, the best scenario that we can be in our life, the most enjoyable it can be. And so uh, all those things that happen outside of our opinion of what is right and what is proper, we begin to bend our energy, bend our will to affecting a different outcome. And so there's a, a political race, and you begin to kind of stump for the, the party that most radically represents your viewpoint. And you begin to demonize uh, the person who disagrees with you. And, and, and when our friend groups and everything is formed this way, and, and while politics can be good, while all of these things may be helpful, they are never ultimate. Jesse read uh, this wonderful verse from Philippians earlier that gives us this idea that our citizenship is not here. It's, it's not on earth. Peter has a wonderfully succinct way of stating it in, in 1 Peter verse 1. He says he writes to the elect exiles. He writes to the sojourners, this place is not your home. And I'm not talking about Greenville, Texas. 
talking about earth. I'm talking about our society. I'm talking about our governments. These things are not ultimate. Look what he says. He says, for the present form of this world is passing away. But some of us, some of us act like if, if Cruz loses to Beto or Beto loses to Cruz, like our world is going to come unglued and, and the Illuminati or whoever it is that you think is going to take over is going to come out of the woodwork and everything's going to fall apart and society's just going to decay and you're going to be locked in your room, loaded to the teeth. You know, you got guns and bows and arrows and you got your generator and, and you figured out how to turn corn into gasoline and, and the still's working well when things aren't going great. And so you're just kind of locked down. Don't have me over for dinner. It would be like the terriblest place in the world to be if everything went sideways. I just want to go out quickly. I want the zombie to bite me and I can pass. But there's this preoccupation within, within evangelical circles to be over-obsessed and concerned with steering democracy in a way that, that most readily resembles our internal convictions. It's not a bad thing to be involved in the political process, and I would argue that if you're a Christian, you should be, but it's never an ultimate thing. Someday, someday everything's going to break. Everything's going to go sideways, and it's going to be okay. If you set your hopes and dreams that the right's always going to win and the left's never going to, you're going to be disappointed. If you set your dreams that the left's always going to win and the right's never going to, you're going to be disappointed. But if you set your hopes and dreams on the coming return of Jesus Christ, you will never be disappointed. He is coming and coming soon. And we need to live our lives like that ultimate reality is all that matters to us. We are people easily discouraged, and we are a people easily distracted by the squirrels of pressing exigencies in our life. This world is passing away and fleeting. Let's give our hope and allegiance to Jesus Christ. Paul writes, and he says, look, now that I've made it through that, I want you to be free from anxieties. And they say, (gasps) everything's going away. There's nothing lasting, nothing enduring. He says, that's right. I want you to be free from anxieties. And so he's going to give us the way this could work. He says, the unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. So he goes back to the idea that singleness is best. Singleness is best in terms of freedom to go and serve Jesus. And he's going to describe the same things in terms of the woman. But look what he goes on to say. He says, but the married man is anxious about the things of the world, how to please his wife. And his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about the things of the world, how to please her husband. So we find that if you are not married, if you are single, then you have a greater amount of time to spend considering and contemplating I wonder what God would have me do. And perhaps you have that same time within marriage, but this is how it works within marriage. I begin to have some deep sense that God is calling us to something, or Valerie has some deep sense that God is calling us to something. And so I go to her and I say, look, I've got this deep sense that God is calling us to something. She says, I hate it when you say that. And she comes to me, she says, I've got this deep sense. I'm like, I, I don't, no, no more deep senses. 
It's because we begin to rationalize and make expectations for how am I going to please her? How am I going to maintain this one flesh union to honor her and to honor the Lord at the same time? And this is why Paul said, if you're married, you're going to have worldly troubles because the overabundance of our time will be spent trying to please our spouse. And it's just difficult. You have two people with diverging opinions, and it's difficult. You have two people with different perspectives, and it's difficult. Under the best of circumstances, you have two sinful people living together trying to glorify God. And lo and behold, one of them ends up being selfish. (laughs) She's here, to be honest. Recognize the things that the single person gets to devote their mind to, living a life for how to please the Lord. But yet we have this compunction that we want to lead single people out of singleness so that they can please someone else. Look at what he said about the, the betrothed woman. He says that they get to be anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit, and, and, and we would want them to, to move out of that. I'll tell you, like, if you are single in this room, If you're single in this room, God has given you an abundance of time and terrific untapped resources to serve him, to glorify him. Maybe it's in the university. Maybe it's not. Maybe you go to vocational school. Maybe you work in a job and you do so faithfully and you impact your neighborhood. Maybe you move to the mission field or or, or you teach or in whatever capacity he calls you, you are not bridled. To someone else. You're not not dependent upon them. You don't make decisions to please them. And this is why he says this. It is better. It is preferable. In terms of the gospel. To do this. But are you content? If you're single. The question becomes. are Are you content to do this? Recognize when the, all these crowns are following Jesus, he said, look, you can't come and be my disciple if you're not ready to lay down your life and die. And for some of us, laying down our autonomy, our freedom of choice, feels like dying. It's absolutely worth it. Someday we'll sit in heaven, we'll be surrounded by this great cloud of people who poured out their lives being faithful to God. And they'll be talking to us about our, our families and what it was like to raise kids and what it was like to do all these things. And all we we'll want to do is shut up and listen to them describe what it was like to live a life poured out for Jesus Christ. Let's encourage people to faithfulness. Let's encourage people to surrender themselves to the leading of the Holy Spirit and not seek to damn them by interpreting God's will for them, either for singleness or for marriage, to force them into a box whereby they should live out the obligations that we have set upon them. Paul goes on, he says, look, guys, I want to say this, verse 35, for your benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. And so we come to this, and you've got to recognize something. That if you're married in this place, then God desires, he delights, and he calls for your undivided devotion. This is why he had this paradoxical statement, if you have a wife, you need to live as if you had none. Just because I'm married 
doesn't give me an out in terms of giving God my undivided devotion, my undivided attention. But it is more difficult. But Paul gives us this statement, and he says, look, I'm not prescribing this for anybody. He's already given us an out previously. and said, look, singleness is, is a gift that some people have received and others haven't. And if you can't walk in this reality, then perhaps it's not for you. But are you living a life submitting yourself to the Holy Spirit, being dependent upon him? What does it look like? What is a picture of undivided devotion to the Lord? Some of us, our minds are so full of things, we have no idea what it looks like to have a mind that's undevoted or that is undivided in, in devotion to anything. We have no small number of things that can distract, that can keep our focus and attention and energy moving around. We have a collective ADD that has set in. We always want to be entertained. We always want to be distracted. We're always moving to the next thing. And look what he says here. I want your undivided devotion. What does it look like? What does it look like to you? Begin to roll that question around in your mind. Let that be the thing that transforms us from merely being a people who attend to being a people who are engaged. What would it look like for you to leverage everything you have for Jesus? And has it ever been true of you? Or have you merely kind of gone from thing to thing to thing. I went to church for a little while, and then I got saved, and then I went to church for a little while, and then I kind of went out there, and I just kind of followed whatever the single greatest influence of my life. God is not willing to be the second greatest influence of your life. He's not willing to do that to your spouse. He's not willing to do that to some project. He's not willing to do that for anything. He is first. He is foremost. And he's calling for your undivided devotion. Let's move on. In 36 through 40, Paul gives us uh, kind of two pictures. And so one is the idea of what it is to be betrothed. And then he comes back and he hits divorce there at the end. He says, if anyone's not behaving properly towards his betrothed, if his passions are strong, and it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let them marry. It's no sin. 37, but whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control, and has determined this in his heart to keep her as his betrothed, he does well. So he offers a summary statement. So he who marries, uh, he who marries his betrothed does well, but look what he comes back to. But he who refrains from marriage will do even better, giving us this once more, this countercultural statement that it is better, it is superior to leverage the gospel as a single person than a married person, if you can do it. If you can do it. He says, a wife is bound to her husband as long as, as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she's free to be married to whomever she wishes, only in the Lord's. In essence, let this person be a Christian. So he describes the scenario. He says, look, so let's say what happens if you've been married for some length of time and your spouse dies and you find yourself single. And you may ask the question, I, I, I don't know how to be single. I only know how to be a, a package deal with somebody else. And so you find yourself going on, on Tinder, you find yourself going on some app, or you find yourself going on, uh, you know, to some speed dating, or you find yourself asking friends, who do you know that's single? Who do you know that you could hook me up with? Because you don't want to be alone. This is your reality. He says, yet in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is. 
Notice there. He says they're happier to remain single. We tend to have this understanding that happiness is this thing to be enjoyed with someone else. But Paul makes this statement that happiness alone with the Lord has the possibility of being greater than happiness married with someone else. They do better and they are happier. So we look at this statement. She should remain as she is. Christian ethics, from chapter 5 all the way through chapter 7, has called us to submit ourselves to Jesus. This is why when Paul ends it, he makes this statement that appears just a little bit cryptic. He says, and I too have the Holy Spirit. The only hope of any of us honoring God in the way that we carry ourselves, in the way that we live our lives, is, is not this, this repeated mind, uh, my frame of mind that, that I need to keep myself from doing these things and I need to only spend time with people that do the right thing over here, but the only thing that keeps us there is a full dependence upon the Holy Spirit of God. And so Paul has tenderized their hearts in some ways of, of pointing out all the various inadequacies and all the various ways that, that they've engaged in a life that's not honoring to God. But here at the end, he calls them back full circle, and he says, look, you have the Spirit of God dwelling inside you. In essence, he could say it this way, you have enough to honor him. You have enough to honor him. You see, because if you're a person who has come to the conclusion that Jesus is true, that he lived, that he died, that your sins are forgiven in his blood, you confess that and you choose to follow him, then the Bible tells us in the Gospel of John and elsewhere that you're a person who is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. So God has engineered your life to follow and submit to him. And so when you are making decisions, you're making your decisions not as a person uh, alone out there on the aisle of ethics, but you're a person who always has a companion that steers them true. You are indwelled by the Holy Spirit. And it's living a life in full devotion to Jesus, in a full love relationship with him, and being led daily, moment by moment, in full dependence of the Holy Spirit that brings honor and glory to him. Amen? Amen. Let me pray for us. Father God, I pray that you would help us to be a people dependent upon the Holy Spirit. Not a people looking for uh, simple answers or uh, the one, two, threes of how to engage in this scenario, but a people who are making decisions, living lives, and engaging out of a full dependence upon your Holy Spirit. God, that's a terrifying situation for many of us. We make lists, we follow rules, and we want to see that written down, we want to see that easy, but you call us to a radical relationship of faith in you and submission to your Holy Spirit. And so God, I pray that you would call us into that, you would help us to love you well, to submit to you in all things. Would you help us to walk out faithfully with one another, to be an encouragement to one another. And I thank you for the gift that your Holy Spirit is, leading us in righteousness, convicting us of sin. Help us to honor and glorify you in all things. We submit these things to you in your son's name. Amen. Amen.
Hey, friends, let me ask you to stand as we enter into a time of continued worship. Let us unite our hearts in song as we respond to the movement of our Lord.